find yourself at the Hurt Take. Welcome back for another round. I am your host, Reese Dobigan. Sorry about that intro. I thought maybe I should have been more excited considering that UFC 217 was maybe one of the best MMA cards you will ever see in your life. And, uh, and honestly, a little bit of me is still buzzing, but... Sorry, I hit the record button and it just it just didn't come out. But... This weekend was an absolutely incredible night of fights. I spent it with a good group of boys, good crowd, good times. One guy amongst me, amongst the group, actually called all three upsets in the title fights. So good for you, Dan. Nice job. There's some pretty fun banter. My boy Jeremy. Did his personal impression of Michael Bisbing actively defending himself. And I'm using air quotations because he thought that the fight should have been stopped earlier. But he's wrong. That That's a hot take for any of you out there who think the same thing. Let's quickly jump into it though. Some quick hitters to start off. UFC 217. Well, first and foremost, what a strange night. You had a knee to the balls, followed immediately by a head kick, leading to a disqualification of Walt Harris in his semi-sort of rematch against uh, the Beer of the Gods, a fight that was supposed to happen about a month ago, I guess now, but instead Walt Harris went and decided he would get tapped by Fabricio Verdum, last minute notice in 52 seconds. Shows up here, knees a guy in the balls, kicks him in the face, gets disqualified. Strange month for him. Also on the card, the Mickey Gall hype train. Buoyed by kind of retrospectively lame wins now in hindsight over CM Punk and Sage Northcutt. Uh, it appears has come to a halt. You know, he didn't look too bad against Randy Brown, but nonetheless, it kind of feels like Gall is now being slotted into what his preordained position in the UFC seems to have been had he not had that divine intervention of making a call out with Dana White in the house on Dana White's looking for a fight. Which is the way it should be. This is a kind of a, an overarching opinion about guys jumping the line, using their mouths. Well, Mickey Gall seems to be relegated to the spot he was always meant to be in. Struggling against guys like Randy Brown. Paulo Costa, whose name, uh, by the way, I got wrong last week, looked absolutely vicious and also looked absolutely yoked out of his mind like few fighters are. You know, that drew, that drew the steroid accusation on Twitter immediately from Derek Brunson. And, you know, at this point, with this sport, it, it really is hard not to simply assume a guy like Paulo Costa is on something and then let him prove otherwise over time. You know, passing USADA tests. If, if two years from now and he still hasn't been busted, well, okay, maybe he's just a natural freak. But when you look at him right now and the way he finished that fight, man, I don't know. 
I don't know. It kind of reminds me of a, of a young Vitor. I, I mean, that comparison has been used before, but the way he looked. And Vitor, in his young years, was busted for steroids. Same incredible explosion. Same incredible physique. Either way, it uh, looks like he's ushered Johnny Hendricks out of the UFC. More than likely, I would think. Johnny Hendricks this uh, saying before the fight that I give him a year at Jackson Wink and no one would beat him. Kind of feels like Sunday morning he was wishing that that year anniversary had been the night before, but alas, it was not. Stephen Thompson gets the win over Jorge Masvidal. Wonderboy, I mean, he is kind of playing out this narrative right now that he's boring. Um, now after those two Woodley fights because against Jorge Masvidal it felt like we went in with this expectation that he was boring that his style was boring that he couldn't get these finishes that whatever and, and honestly that, that feeling you know was very pervasive in this fight it felt laconic felt like nothing was happening and yet and yet he continues to dazzle as a striker. Uh, you really get that whoa feeling. Even when you're not amazed by the overall scope of the fight. You know, to me, he's the quintessential spot performer, right? Like, like a Hulk Hogan. You know, you aren't entertained necessarily by the things that hold that game together. I mean, Hulk Hogan was just boring, slow. But when he lands those big moments, those he hits those big spots, when Hulk Hogan landed that leg drop, you just get fired up. That's Stephen Thompson, man. His sidekicking game, some of the things he can do, he hits those spots and you're like, whoa. So I feel like we just need a couple more fights of that to get past the idea that maybe he's a boring fighter. Because he's not. He's incredible to watch. He just was in a terrible stylistic matchup against Tyron Woodley twice. Okay, let's jump straight to the stuff that matters, right? The big stuff. And we're going to go straight to the top. We're not even going to start with any of these co-headliners. George Rush St. Pierre. Oh, baby. How good did it feel to be Canadian on Saturday night, right? Sorry for all you American listeners. Saturday night, we ruled. Okay? Although I guess not really for the American, for the British. We weren't really we weren't really fighting you as our guy against the British guy. So Americans, I'm sorry. Well, Canadians, we still ruled over the Americans just simply by the fact that we had the we had the man. We had the man in the fight. George St. Pierre made his triumphant return. You know, the funny thing about it was. I think the way the fight played out and his victory were twice as impactful because this this didn't feel like it was supposed to happen. This didn't feel like it was supposed to be the outcome. The narrative leading up to this fight, the entire story leading into this fight was mired by this controversy, by this idea that this fight, when it was first announced, no one felt that it was the right fight to make. No one felt that it was GSP coming out of retirement and jumping the line. 
at middleweight, a packed division at the time. Bisping was a defending uh, a champion who had defended once against a guy who didn't deserve it, Dan Henderson, while all of these other deserving guys were waiting. The Robert Whitakers, Jacare Souza's, Yoel Romero's, Gegar Mousasi's, all these guys were jockeying for position under him, and then GSP jumped the line. So no one wanted this fight initially. And then as time went on, as we went into the summer, it appeared that the UFC, Dana White, were bickering with, Dan with, with GSP. GSP was saying he needed more time. The UFC wanted a summer date. GSP said, I'm not ready till the fall. Then Michael Bisbing says, I'm hurt. Then the fight gets called off entirely, and by the end of the summer, it's back on again. So the narrative, the public perception of this fight, all the way until fight night, was largely like, what is going on here? This is not... No one was truly excited to see this fight, really, maybe other than in Canada. And all of that, all of that negative buildup, only made it that much more incredible, that much sweeter, when GSP stepped back in the cage and looked like the old GSP. Not old GSP, but the old vintage GSP that we're so used to seeing. Maybe a touch, maybe a touch less quick, admittedly. But man, he he was he was vintage GSP, man. He came out, started throwing that jab, and I was like, yes! Went for those takedowns. Same, it just, it, you really, I really had a sense of nostalgia. It's like, he's back. Even as the fight seemed to go, you know, for every jab he landed, it seems Bisbing was countering. You know, he hit a few takedowns, but Bisbing got right back up again on a couple of them. On another one of his takedowns, Bisbing was was keeping him real low in his guard and, and getting that leverage to use the elbows and slice GSP up, got him bleeding. And yet GSP was doing new things. He was throwing some wheel kicks as, as Bisbing was trying to uh, circle out along the cage. Bisbing, um, GSP was using these wheel kicks, kind of a Conor McGregor special. McGregor was trying to use those for a while. So that was that was cool. Uh, not to mention GSP throwing a right hand overhand, uh, a right overhand counter, trying to throw that right overhand counter over Bisbing's jab. Clearly, he had watched the Dan Henderson fight. Henderson, old, slow Dan Henderson, was catching Bisbing with that in their fight. GSP learned, and he was throwing it. He was never. I mean, he's always been a fantastic scientific fighter. But it was just great to see him kind of really, really throwing to exploit Bisbing on the feet. And then catching Bisbing. This is a guy who has not finished anyone in eight years. And that was a doctor stoppage against B, uh, BG Pen, BJ Penn. My apologies. Catches Bisbing with the left hook, drops him on his ass, pounces on him. Drops a bunch of elbows, doesn't get the finish that way, but Bisbing rolls, takes his back, and chokes him literally unconscious. Just an incredible way to finish that fight. Amazing. And, of course, the question is, does this mean that GSP 
is now the greatest of all time? My take on that is, listen, calling someone the GOAT at this point in this sport, it, it's so it's so young and it is evolving. I mean, we haven't even really been through a generation yet. We've been through an, maybe a little a short era, but now we're not even through a generation yet. This sport's really only been around, you know, in a, in kind of a, a real form for about 20 years. And if you want to jump up to the tough years and kind of from that point on, we still haven't made it through a generation, you know, since they really made the regulations to the point that this is what the sport is, how controlled it is. Back from the days of just, you know, bare knuckle uh, and all the weird rules. We still haven't been through a generation of this. So to call someone the GOAT is kind of a day-to-day -day proposition. You know, just over a month ago, Demetrius Johnson made his emphatic statement to be the GOAT. This summer, John Jones did the same. And it was just over a year ago that Conor McGregor was given his moment as the GOAT when he became the first fighter to hold two belts at the same time. So it's such a moment-to-moment -moment proposition with this. But based on accolades alone, yeah. I mean, GSP now, a belt in two divisions. Uh, the fact that he did it at a more advanced age after four years off is a testament I don't care that he did it against Michael Bisping. You know, we might say Michael Bisping wasn't the greatest middleweight champion, but the fact of the matter is that Michael Bisping is a good fighter, and he won the middleweight belt, period. He had it, and he earned it. He's got more victories than anyone in the UFC. Well, now technically, now he's actually tied with GSP. So, based on accolades alone, GSP, I mean, that that is a convincing argument the question now is will he defend that middleweight belt against Robert Whitaker hey it uh, Dana White says so Dana White says so and well whatever I guess we can sort of trust what Dana White says but that's a very intriguing matchup not the least because of the comparables between the two you know Whitaker is a classic he's they're both yoked up sized up middleweights both of them started their careers at welterweight now they're kind of sized up they both have uh karate backgrounds they both use their jabs very effectively Whitaker actually probably more effectively in terms of the versatility of his jab they're both from the Commonwealth, baby. E even after what GSP did against Bisping, I still don't feel he would handle some of the bigger guys in the division, someone like a Romero or a Souza, but uh, he can definitely compete with Whitaker, the same way Whitaker can compete with those bigger guys. But I feel like Whitaker's game is a bit more suited to fighting the big guys. So it'll be very interesting to see. I would love to see that fight. And for his part, Whitaker already threw a bit of shade at GSP saying he looked like a slower version of himself. So there you go.
They're supposed, they're supposed to be a card in Perth, Australia early next year. Hey. Come on, George. Make the flight. Another case of a, of a... Another case of a narrative that seemed to be going in a direction and then went the other way. Rose Nami Yunus. I mean, this is, this is a girl who I said on our show has been very inconsistent in her career. And she has. And the narrative, you could have picked one or the other. Was this, was this a woman who was coming into her own, fulfilling her talents? Or was this just an inconsistent, inconsistent fighter benefiting from being very talented and have had, having had a few good wins to get her title shot? But ultimately, she was not going to be able to defeat the greatest women's MMA fighter on the planet? But I'll tell you what. Rose Namajunas had the performance of her life. I was completely wrong. I wasn't even close to being right. I was completely wrong. A lot of people, I think, ate crow. I, I did not think she was going to offer uh, that kind of challenge to Joanna because, you know, Yinjechik has weathered so many hard-hitting strikers and tougher grapplers and if Rose was not going to be able to get in close for a submission, how could how could she be the one? Of all the people that Joanna says, how could she be the one to knock Joanna out? Well, apparently Yinjechek is like virtually every other fighter and gets discombobulated by feints, by people messing with her timing. No one's really been able to accomplish that because she always dictated the terms. She always had the um, the initiative. And, and Nami Yunus took that from her in this fight. She was fainting a lot. She was using her distance really well. She would faint and Joanna would flinch and then she would faint and Joanna would throw at air. You know, great fainting in MMA is like a good pass rush in football, okay? It makes any great striker hesitant and jittery you know a great pass rush in the nfl slows quarterbacks down they can't step into their passes they get happy feet they don't plant their feet to throw tom brady the greatest quarterback of all time when he's pressured well is not nearly the same guy well nami Yunus made yunjaychik hesitate she didn't sl she didn't slow yunjaychik's pace but she made her unsure of when to throw and when to not. And so most times when Joanna threw, she just completely missed. I mean, in the, th in the three minutes of the fight, Yinjaychek threw over 40 strikes and landed five. And that was all Namunas. Faking in, dashing out, faking, faking, dashing out when Yinjaychek threw. And then when she did come in with that left... Yunjaychek was reaching for a completely other punch. She didn't. Ex she was expecting something else because she didn't know. She was jittery. She wasn't sure what to do. Amazing win uh, by Nami Yunus. Just amazing. Now we'll see if she can defend it. Because, you know, uh, on the MMA hour, Pat Barry was just talking about how emotionally draining the whole week was for Nami Yunus. Uh... Unami Yunus has always been kind of talked about as a, as someone who gets emotional in fight week. Look, she did not look emotional during this fight week. She looked really calm. 
And hey, maybe she discovered a new tactic for messing with chatty, you know, trash talking people. Just literally go into a trance. Go into a trance. She recited the Lord's Prayer while Joanna was yelling, I'm, I'm the boogie woman, in her face at the weigh-in. So she did not look like she was emotionally out of it, but Pat Barry was talking about how emotionally draining the whole week was for Nami Yunus. To me, that's a testament to the outgoing champion, Jacek, who has gone through five of those kinds of weeks. Maybe not all as big as MSG, but, but big enough, like... That's what being a champion means, weathering the emotional storm, staying focused, taking the best shot everybody has to bring. You know, that's partly what, what sunk Rousey. That's partly what the kind of sunk GSP and led to his retirement was the investment of, of the mental investment, emotional investment of defending your crown as champ. It's so tough to sustain that. Can Nama Yunus do that? We'll see. We'll see. Will Yin Jacek get an immediate rematch? Usually with definitive losses like that, one would say no. But she has defended five times. You know, I, I think she has earned that right. But, hey, I would not be broke up about it if, if they asked her to fight somebody else first. I mean, she's almost cleaned out the entire division. So, you know, Nami Yunus can take another fight first. And Yun Jacek can take another fight first. And, you know, either way, I wouldn't be disappointed. But incredible win for Nami Yunus. Really looking forward to, to her. I hope this is a stepping point for her to really come into her own. Because it would be very exciting to have Yun Jacek and Nami Yunus. You know? I think that these two will fight again. And I think that they probably will fight a third time. Meanwhile, TJ, TJ Dillashaw, Ill Dill Killashaw, comes out ahead of his bitter, bitter rival, former teammate, former friend, Cody Garbrandt. That was the fight I was most excited to see. And that was sort of the fight, I think, that had the best in-fight narrative. You know, Garbrandt did his thing. He taunted he taunted like he did against Dominic Cruz, and it was it was fun. And he caught Dillashaw at the very end of that first round, and, and it looked like he might get away with the win. But Dillashaw was saved by the bell. And those moments are great because they either go one of two ways. One way is the other guy comes out and swarms them, and it feels like it was, a ne it was a ne an inevitability, or... The other fighter makes a, an, a drastic comeback, and that's what we got. Just a great job by Dillashaw. Garbrandt wants a rematch. I don't think he's going to get it. I mean, he never even defended the belt, so I, I don't see how he gets it. I think that, the, you know, it will be interesting. The cards now, I think, largely are in... Demetrius Johnson's hands in ter terms of what happens with Dillashaw. Dillashaw called him out after the fight. He wants to have that super fight. But it's up to Demetrius Johnson. And oddly enough in this whole thing, I, I got to do one of these for Demetrius Johnson. 
Because no matter what Dana White wants to say, no matter how he wants to play revisionist history and say that, that you know, DJ whined for a payday and now here he's got it, there's, there's no denying that Demetrius Johnson played his cards absolutely right and has made the UFC and TJ Dillashaw look like idiots. DJ comes out ahead in this whole situation. He held off on a TJ super fight, got Ray Borg, broke the UFC record, gets his names in the gets his name in the record books, and in the interim now, TJ wins the bantamweight title, and now if DJ gets that fight, if he chooses to have that fight with TJ, he's got way more to his name. He's got way more going towards this fight in terms of promotional powers. It's champion versus champion. If he had fought TJ before, it wouldn't have been that. It wouldn't have been that at all. Had Garbrandt won, like, anyone who feels DJ somehow miscalculated, you're wrong. You're wrong, man. Like, had Garbrandt won, that's who Garbrandt wanted to fight. That's who Garbrandt wanted to fight, too. So by holding out, DJ was essentially saying, fine, you two fight, I'll take the winner. DJ made himself the wanted man in this equation. He made those two idiots want to fight him. Great stuff. I, I think DJ ultimately is the one who wins in this whole situation. DJ wins... TJ second, Uriah Faber third, because now Uriah Faber, he the, the great teammate, i.e. teammate boss owner, hinted that he would take the, the a Dillashaw fight. That would coax him out of retirement. Give me a break. Give me a break. This whole narrative about how TJ was a bad teammate, all this stuff, this is all stuff that TJ said when he left about how Faber controls the team. He's an owner. It's all about him. It is all about Faber and has always been. He's had... How many times have there been arguments about head coaches there? He ran off Dwayne Ludwig. They had controversy with Martin Campman. Now controversy with Justin Buckholtz. Because it's always been about Faber. Very interesting to see... I, I would I want to see the DJ TJ fight first, but I would definitely I would definitely pay to watch Uriah Faber swing at air trying to fight TJ Dillashaw. I would pay for it. I would pay just to see Uriah Faber get his stupid face smacked. Cause that's what it would be. It'd be just like the Dominic Cruz fight. It would just be like when Jimmy Rivera schooled his old ass. That's what it would be. And I would pay to see that. Now, one thing I, I want to say on a, a kind of a bigger thematic level from UFC 217 that I found interesting was based on the way that GSP and Nami Yunus conducted themselves, it felt like, in a sense, this was a bit of a referendum on the trend of, of trash talking, on the trend of guys and girls trying to promote themselves by putting other people down. Which isn't, I mean, this is something that's been in combat sports for years and years and years. But it is refreshing to see GSB come back and just be a total professional. 
you know, and it's hilarious to see him apologize for saying the word balls on pay-per-view. It's not even TV, George. It's pay-per-view. And he's, you know, oh, I can't say that. Oh, you could say it, George. You know, Rose Namajuna saying she doesn't feel any different. I'm still a normal person. Talking about how she thinks there's too much trash talking in the sport. It's nice to see that. While it's great, while it's great to have all that trash talk, it can become too much when when you have a lot of people doing it and a lot of people doing it poorly. You're just the same way that the GSP's gentlemanly act kind of got tired by the end because it became too much. Trash talk can become too much. It's better. It's always better to have a balance. Always better. So the same way that GSP had success being a professional, being a well-spoken guy, Nami Yunus, maybe she will come out and prove that it can still work. If she can become a star by being that soft-spoken, respectful person, it'll prove that you don't have to do it the McGregor way. And maybe it will convince some of these athletes out there to stop being what they're not and trying to talk their way into big matchups. Let's hope. Well, I want to thank you for coming back to The Hurt Take, for joining me again for this week on the MMA podcast for the fans, by the fans. And this week... I'm going to sign off on a different note. That, I met Matt Hughes and I shook his hand, and like I was significantly taller than him, and his hand was twice the size of mine. Oh, I'm serious. <laughs> his fist was fucking Dude, huge. his like traps. Yeah. yeah. Like, he doesn't have yeah. it. He's like, hey, nice to meet you. I shook his hand. Wow. Felt more he told you it was nice to Well, there you go, folks. I couldn't have said it better myself. So. I am Reese Dobigan. I am your host. This is The Hurt Take. And I am out.